0: It's a amazingly beautiful, snowy day here in Iowa, and uh, once again, we're going to bring a good podcast to all you guys. Uh, last week on the Facebook page, I actually had asked the question on what kind of subjects would you guys like to talk about, and I was only really needing a few topics, but uh, we ended up, even after I typed on there that I'm cutting it off and I had enough to to talk about you guys kept going with all the different things that you wanted to listen to so with that in mind there were several good ones so I just uh, went ahead and copied and pasted um, some of those questions and I've got about two pages of them here that I uh, figured we might as well just start working through so I appreciate all you guys out there um, going through and and asking these questions and also trying to come up with something, you know, on all levels as well. I know that there's a pretty big assortment of listeners out there uh, to all the knock-on projects, everything ranging from beginner bow hunters all the way to elite level target archers, and that's really something I'm proud about is being able to have a an archery community uh, where we're able to have a full group of people like that. So. This is going to be um, some really good weeks uh, coming up as well for the show. This next week is actually going to be uh, a replay of Episode 3, um, which I had talked a little bit about on the last podcast. It had some a few critics here and there on that. But then uh, immediately following that, we're going to get into all new episodes again. And uh, just so all you are out there know, you know, kind of the network decides episode rotation so um, sometimes they'll play three new episodes then replay three and sometimes they'll they'll play six full new episodes and then replay six and sometimes four or whatever it is so this time anyway it was three new ones and three repeats but the there's going to be new ones coming up after this week, and uh are some of my favorite ones. So I'm hoping all you out there really enjoy that as well, and we'll definitely have some more topics to talk about after those. But uh, might as well get into these Q&As here. First question I got was from uh, Jason Ross, and uh, nice buck on your profile picture there, Jason. Appreciate that. He said um, he wanted me to talk a little bit about the proper way to fire a hinge, uh, you know, a hinge release, back tension release, uh, the, they're getting extremely popular now. A lot of the top-level archers are using them again. Um, they used to be used a lot more in the past. Then we kind of gravitated towards thumb triggers. And then now a lot of archers are gravitating back towards, a, you know, a full back, tent, back tension or hinge release. And I think a lot of this really boils down to the fact that we're able to really have so much more visual communication with what some of the top-level people are doing. You know, in the past, you really had to almost be at an ASA tournament or an IBO tournament to see what some of these top guys were using, Um, and some people, you know, they change frequently. But now with social media, obviously, um, a lot of people are able to really show you what what they're practicing with and what they're training with so you're seeing a back tensions a lot more often Um, and really with the back tension release you know there's kind of two different uh, opposing ways to shooting it. The first way is uh, you know exactly what you talked about relaxing the hand which is what I'm a firm believer in Um, I believe uh, reducing tension in your shot sequence really helps the ability to To maintain steadiness um, and also reduce the amount of overall tension in your body, to be honest with you. So, the way that I was taught to shoot uh, by Randy Ulmer was I actually draw back almost making a fist as I draw. You know, I, I hold my index finger and my thumb very tight as I draw that back. Um, as I come to my anchor, I'll flatten my hand so that I can get my anchor position the way that I want it. You know, I don't like to ultimately have a fist on the release because then your main knuckles bring that release too far off your face. And it also has some inconsistency in the, in the actual, uh, location of the hook. So, I like to draw back with that fist. Then I straighten my hand up and make the back part of my hand flat so that I can find my anchor point, which for me, I like to bring the index finger directly underneath my jawbone. And then my middle finger and ring finger will fit just above my jawbone on the side of my cheek. Um, What I do anytime I'm coming to my anchor is I think two things. One, does it look right? Two, does it feel right? You know, obviously, a lot of people understand. Does it feel right? You know, does your anchor feel like you're in the same spot? You know, some people just always dig that knuckle behind their earlobe, or some people hook their thumb behind their neck, which I'm not a fan of. But um, you know, I bring that that index finger underneath my jaw, and then what I do is I kind of turn my release hand slightly so that my ring finger and my middle finger have contact with the side of my cheek. And I kind of use my pinky as a gauge to the part of the my equation that I said does it look right. So what I mean by that is when you draw your bow back and you're looking at your release hand straight from behind it. You can have your release hand in a flat position or turned all the way to a straight 12 o'clock vertical position. Or even in some cases, like with Jeff Hopkins, he's almost at 11 o'clock. He's, he's almost beyond inverted. And uh, the one thing that I think is critical here is that that position is the same all the time. There's not huge relevance to whether you need to be perfectly flat or perfectly vertical that can vary, but you do need to make sure that you're in the same spot every time. And what I can tell you as well is, the more vertical you turn your release hand, the more importance there is on just uh, how exact that needs to be. If you shoot a more flat hand, you can almost have a 10 degree variance in your actual release position for for angle when you're looking at it from behind. But once you start to get to that vertical position, even a change as much as five degrees can definitely have uh, an impact difference at 70, you know, for sure at 70 yards. The longer yardages, it'll magnify intensely. So when I think of does it look right, when I draw my hand back and then I flatten my hand and come to my anchor I use my pinky as a gauge and, and my ring finger as well. If one shot I don't feel my ring finger on my face but the next shot I do then I know that I've got inconsistency on the actual flatness of my hand if you're looking at it from the back. Whereas if one time I draw back and all of a sudden I'm at my anchor position and I'm aiming and I can feel my pinky on my face well now I know I've turned my hand even more vertical. So. You know, when it comes to shooting this release, and I know I'm going a lot more in depth than just what you're asking about here, but this is all part of the equation of why I choose to shoot a hinge release the way that I do. So when I come to that anchor position, and again, my hand's flat, I've got my thumb and my index finger, you know, locked tight on that hinge release so that it won't fire, from that position, Then once I start aiming and I center my dot and I'm letting my dot do its thing, I just continue to focus on allowing my bow arm to be relaxed from my elbow forward. And then I also focus on starting to let my release hand relax as well. So I'll slowly start to just point my index finger down towards my shoe I'll just relax that index finger, relax that hand, and allow that hand to straighten out, and my shot goes off incredibly smooth. Now, the opposite way of shooting that would be to draw back, come to your anchor position, and actually make a fist or curl your pinky and ring finger to actually manipulate that release and rotate it around until it fires. Now for me personally, when I do that, I end up sometimes coming out of my shot different each and every time, and sometimes if I'm having to rotate that release by moving my fingers, I also seem to find that I see that movement in my front pin as well. So for me personally, the relaxing method um, and the faster I relax, the faster it'll go off. You know, some people want to shoot, you know, I've shot that release out in the wind. Um, you know, go out 70, 90 meters in a wind and try to shoot a back tension release. Some people say, well, how do you do it? Well, I just get more aggressive on my shot. I make my fist, come to my anchor, get my pin on the center of that dot. And I'm blowing around. I'm doing my best to center it, and I'm just relaxing that finger you know, as I'm pulling that elbow straight behind me, I'm just relaxing that finger and and just really committing to the shot and letting the arrow land wherever it may. Um, And by relaxing the finger and focusing on pulling that elbow, when my shot breaks, I'm able to follow through and bring that release hand back over my shoulder. Whereas if I'm trying to make a release, and this is one thing for any of you out there that watch the Lancaster Archery, Uh, classic, there was a time where I was actually watching uh, Chance shoot, and on a few shots, um, and actually one of them was one of the few arrows Chance missed, he was actually making that fist on his release, and when his release broke, I saw that he came out and away from his face which that's the same type of thing that I find myself doing at times when I'm trying to manipulate the release, is if I'm turning too much with my pinky and ring finger, when that breaks, my motion is already coming out instead of coming back. So that's a big reason why I've chose to shoot it that way. Plus, again, I rely heavily on bone structure, bone alignment, minimal use of muscle, because muscle... One, it's inconsistent. And two, it starts to fatigue. It starts to change. So by reducing your tension in your shot, everything, your face, uh, you know, your mouth, the guys that really scrunch their face up or bring their lip to the string, Some people shoot with their mouth bit down really tight, some shots, and then towards the end of the day, they start to relax their mouth and open their mouth up more. Well, that changes your anchor position too. It changes how things fit on your face. So I always try to just completely be relaxed everywhere except in that rear rhomboid muscle where I'm actually focused on pulling through my shot. I have all that load in that central Uh, rhomboid portion of my back. And then obviously as I'm pulling, I'm using my back and a little rear deltoid and I'm relaxing. And then once that shot breaks, everything is able to come back. And then the only thing that I really focus on having tension is, is bringing tension into my bicep so that that bicep tension helps bring that release hand over the top of your shoulder. So hopefully that uh, answers that question for Not only Jason, but the rest of you guys out there. And I do believe back at the podcast where I talked with Ulmer, I think we talked about that one of the earlier podcasts. So uh, the next one is from uh, Ben Jeklik. He says, where do you start when picking an arrow shaft for your hunting bow? Um, Actually, this is going to be a segment. um, And he says, there seems to be a lot of good choices, but how do you pick one uh, when you don't have the money to try multiple kinds. Um, so there's a couple things to that. One, there's gonna be a great episode of Knock On TV coming up with a, with a dead center segment that's specific to picking the right arrow shaft. I wish I could almost show you that right now because this is a great segment um, that really walks you through several of the shafts that I've chose over the last few years why I chose them and also the pros and cons to each one. But really when I choose a shaft each year, one, the first thing that I look at is, uh, what arrow shafts that are on the market offer me the spine that I need. Cause for me personally, I'm a long draw. I normally shoot heavier weight for hunting. So, you know, I'm, I'm trying to find an arrow that is available in a 300 spine or stiffer. Um, for a lot of people out there, this is one thing that I really want you, all of you out there to do because unfortunately a lot of archery shops want to minimize their inventory, minimize the amount of things that they stock and put on the shelves. So a lot of archery shops, um, and this is one reason why the 300 spine went away in some of the Easton products was because of Lack of demand because the archery shops weren't wanting to stock a 340, a 400, and a 300. So, you know, they actually went away from that because they just weren't selling that many. But in all reality, almost anybody that's over a 30 inch straw needs a 300 spine. But it's easier for a shop to just grab a 400, to grab a 340 sometimes, and just send people out the door. A lot of people shoot a 400 spine. And quite frankly, they're underspined. The best thing you can do is go on the website of whatever uh, arrow manufacturer you're looking at or considering and actually put in your information, put in your draw length, measure your arrow length, Measure properly measure the poundage of your bow and actually look at a spine chart because, and what I can tell you is, if you're ever on the bubble of needing, say, a 400 or a 340, go with the stiffer spine. You're always better off having a stiffer spine than a weaker spine, in my opinion, and also, if by chance it is slightly too stiff, you can always help reduce that uh Weaken that spine just by going to a slightly heavier insert or a slightly heavier broadhead. Um, You know, a lot of these programs don't factor in guys that shoot um, cresting or uh, quick fletch type things, they don't factor in guys that um, shoot a lighted knock. So if you're, you know, say an average guy with 29 inch draw shooting 70 pounds, most shops, a lot of shops anyway, will just give you a 400 shaft out the door you go. Well, you know, you, you take a 400 shaft, you put, you know, some fletching on the back, you put a lighted knock in the back of it, you put that insert in there and then you put a broadhead on there. Well, next thing you know, easily you've almost reduced or you've almost changed that by almost a a half of a spine size so you know you're really better off going with that stiffer one so start with the charts 100% start with the charts first next you just really need to consider do I want speed or do I want kinetic energy you know because and, and also consider um, kind of you have to really look at two uh, what game you're going to be shooting you know whether you're shooting medium to smaller game or whether you're going to be shooting bigger game if you're shooting bigger game you you need to try to find an arrow that when you configure it it's going to be for sure over that 400 uh, g- grains mark um, and obviously if you're if you're shooting you know mid to smaller game animals and you do a lot of uh, spot and stock hunting where you know maybe you have to react a little faster you know you might want an arrow that's slightly, lighter um, and one that allows you to you know like for example when I had some spot in stocks I really liked that hex arrow because I could put a 75 grain brass in the front of it I could get my overall weight to about 450 which was still very fast for an arrow but my FOC was really high so it had great downrange uh, wind drift characteristics so There's a lot of variables. I know that you're right, but main thing is when it comes to arrow shafts, really, if you're gonna look at, you're gonna look at three things. These are the most critical. One, make sure you can find an arrow that actually has a spine that you've looked up and you know is right. And if you're ever on the border, choose the stiffer one. Next, Try to choose an arrow that has the highest tolerance. I really like an arrow that, at the worst, shoots a plus-minus two thousandths variance. Um, You know, preferably one thousandths. Why I like the hex. Why I like ACCs. Um, You know, even when I get my like right now, I'm shooting Axis uh, infused carbon. Um, Even with those, I like to. Uh, I like to to take an arrow or take a dozen and really spin them, put them all in a spinner and, and even minimize the ones that I'm actually going to hunt with down to the ones that are absolutely perfectly true. So spine, make sure that's right. Make sure your actual tolerances are good. And I like to really choose an arrow that allows me the option of different grain inserts whether it's a standard insert, a 50 grain insert, or a brass insert. Those are the key factors for me when I'm choosing my arrows. The next question here is from Matt Witkowski. Um, and he's asking about, um, you know, the having the problem of locking up on the top of the target and fighting the pin. You know, and freezing is definitely something that uh, is a problem for everybody, and something that probably every archer is going to encounter at some point in their life. You know, whether you freeze above the target or freeze below the target, um, either way. And there's a couple things, you know, you're going to need to do uh, or that you can do. This is obviously something that is um, a multi step and a multi month process. Um I had that and I got, you know, I used to freeze beneath the target, really got in the habit of lifting my pin and punching the trigger at the same time. This is actually what um I was doing uh back when Randy Ulmer came up to me at the end of my uh at the end of one of my uh three D seasons. He just saw me on the range and that's when he came up and said, you know, kid, you're going to be a great archer someday if, as long as you can fix that, that freezing pro- problem. And he actually gave me a hinge release out of his own pouch and uh, I learned to shoot that back tension release, learned to be able to put my t- pin on the target and just trust that release in shooting it the exact way that I talked about earlier in this podcast. So... You really are going to need to commit to something, a release that gives you a surprise shot, Matt, whether it's an evolution. A Carter Evolution is a great release if you learn to shoot it the right way. If you buy a Carter Evolution, um, you, you actually should maybe even try calling Carter, ask for Forrest, and ask Forrest if he still has any of the Carter Evolution DVDs that I did. I did some of those about 10 years ago, where it actually walks you through this exact process of freezing, how to use that release, um, and you know, I guess for any of you out there who are new to to seeing me, you'll you'll get to see a, a John Dudley without as much gray hair, um, shooting my target setups and and kind of walking you through that. But really, a couple steps that you can do to help fix your freezing. One is. There are like scopes or lenses where everything's blurred out except for the very center of that lens. It teaches you to look through the clear part of that scope and, it, and ultimately you have to put the dot that you're looking at in the center of that lens. That's what Jesse Broadwater shot for so many years. Um, and I know a lot of other archers that have too, when they battle the target panic or people that shoot like a ring, kind of like an Olympic style recurve archer, where they just look through the center of that peep and just stare at what they're wanting to hit and not really focusing on holding a pin in a certain spot. So that's a great training, training tool, something that you could learn to shoot at home. The other thing is, you know, mentally... You just really have to start learning to judge yourself on the quality of shot that you shoot. Put less emphasis on score and more emphasis on quality. For me, if I make a bad shot, I don't give a crap what the score is. And for that matter, I don't give a crap what the score is if I make a, uh, no matter what shot I make. I judge my shooting on how good my shots are. For me, that is how I judge myself. If I'm happy with my shooting, it's because I'm making good shots. I can get my pin on the target. I'm not thinking about what my pin is doing. I'm just focusing on continual motion, pulling on that trigger, pulling back, pulling, 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 and having a surprise. Boom, that shot goes off. And, you know, you're able to to really not 100% know where your pin was when the shot fired, but you're able to just have a surprise shot and see that arrow go right into the target. You know, there was a lot of times where I came off an archery range and people would come up to me and say, how'd you shoot? And I'd say, oh, I shot really good today. Great day, you know. Well, then the next day I'd see that same person, they'd come up and say, I thought you said you shot good yesterday. And I said, well, I did. I shot really good. And they're like, well, you're you're like 20 points off the lead. And, well, yeah, I didn't say I scored good. I said I shot good. And for me, I was always okay with that. Now, there was days where people also asked me, how'd you shoot? And I said, I, I shot like crap today. And then the same person would see me the next day and say, I thought you said you shot bad. You're, you're sitting in first place. Well, yeah, in my opinion, several of the tournaments I won I didn't shoot good. uh it was just luck of the luck of the draw, and I'm definitely not proud of the tournaments that I won where I shot like crap. I'm a lot more proud of the tournaments where I know and shot flawless uh and not and didn't necessarily win. Um, so by placing emphasis on really judging yourself on quality. And not the score, you will start to be able to mentally get over that hurdle of feeling like you need to, you know, you, you almost, you're afraid to hit when you freeze. A lot of people say you're afraid to miss. You're not. You're afraid to hit the target because you're not putting your pin on the target. So you have to be afraid to hit. So sometimes just the mental reconfirmation of saying, I'm not afraid to hit, I'm not afraid to hit, can you think of that enough, you can start to mentally be able to get your pin back on, because you're like, wait a minute, this time, I'm not afraid to hit that target, I can put my pin on that target, I'm not afraid of, I'm not afraid of hitting, you know, I don't want to miss, I don't want to not hit, so uh, do that, and the other thing too is, um, you know, I used to do a lot of shooting. My best year as an archer, the year where I was, where I held like a number two ranking, um, I actually hardly ever practiced that year. I was, I worked at Matthews at the time. I had a tremendous workload with my sales calls. Um, I had a a lot of responsibilities internally, so I just wasn't able to shoot much at all. But what I do, I can tell you is I had a headset. I was able to, to actually have a headset for every single call. And so I had a, a piece of release rope set to my exact draw length where when I put it through my thumb and I came to my anchor position, the string had tension on my exact draw length. So I'd actually just put a little, I'd tape a little, uh, fiber optic to the top of my thumbnail and I would draw back and I would just put that fiber optic on something in my office and I would just sit there and just pull 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 and boom my shots would fire and it was the same fiber that I used to shoot on my bows so for me I was just building this sight image and I think just over you know hundreds of shots a day where I was just putting my pin you know, there's pictures, um, like for right now, example, I'm in my, I'm down here in my office and I've actually got a picture of, of myself and Frank Zane up on, over on, on the corner of the wall over there. And I was holding up a target, um, that I had shot during a tournament where I met him, you know, and what I would do is I would just, for example, if I'd be on a call, I would just hold my thumb up and put my finger right on that little bitty target in that picture and just hold that pin right in the center of that little target and just make shots or I might look at something else in the room you know maybe I had a maybe I had a, a mount in here or you know just unlimited amount of things you could pick a hole in the wall but you just focus on being able to do that and it's amazing if you're not trying to do it for score just how good a shots you can make and then once you move into something that's real you just say okay crap it's no different than that you know it's the same exact thing so uh you know mentally you just start to get over it so those are some good steps for you to take to get a you know to kind of move towards getting away from that freezing believe me you can get over it i've had it every bad habit in archery i've had and i've got rid of it so uh there's hope for everybody out there but it's gonna take you guys mentally saying okay i'm through with this crap i'm changing my changing my mentality i'm not going to be happy with anything other than than what i want to do to reach my goal uh let's see uh Well, we got a next question here is from, well, the next question was from Dan, I think it's MacLazic. He said, talk about my shoulder if it had anything to do with archery. Well, my shoulder has everything to do with archery, but I did talk about my shoulder on the last podcast, so I probably won't, uh, don't need to go any more in depth on that other than my surgery did get canceled. Um, My surgeon actually didn't have uh, the helper that he wanted so it's rescheduled for one week from today so I don't know if this is kind of a weird cliche or what but I'm literally going to be on an oper- operating room table getting my shoulders split open the day Vegas starts so I don't know if that has any meaning or not hopefully uh, it does for the positive but come Friday uh, I will be getting uh, this whole shoulder surgery thing so keep your fingers crossed for me everybody next question here is from Aiden Ellis and he wants me to talk a little bit about working your way out of a rut Um, man I I like the rut if it's during November and there's whitetails involved but uh, yeah if you're in a slump those can be tough but uh, again the key to archery, I mean, if you want to say you're a master of archery, and I really feel, honestly, like I have mastered archery, um, I don't want to say that arrogantly, but I will tell people out there I've I've done everything wrong. I st- I'd still do some stupid stuff uh, here and there, but the difference is I've completely and totally feel like I've learned that the only thing that matters about archery is standing on the line envisioning a perfect shot with all the steps involved opening your eyes lifting your bow and going through that exact process that I've talked about even today of being able to one, envision a shot before it happens, but then two, being able to actually make that same shot happen that you just visualized of being able to lift your bow, draw back, come to an anchor, look through your peep, center that pin, let that pin just float in the center of that target as you're just going through a continual motion of executing a surprise shot and allowing that shot to break without ever knowing that it was going to happen having a clean follow through and literally be able to watch that arrow tick tock into the target if you focus on that every single time you step to the line you're gonna reduce the amount of ruts you're ever in you know a lot of people that put more emphasis on the prize instead of the process they get in these ruts they have peaks they have big dives and big valleys because they they peak and then they're focused on maintaining that and then when something goes wrong they crash And they put more focus on trying to get out of the crash than what's really important. And that's actually just going through the process. You know, a lot of people ask me why I don't want to shoot all the time, you know, at a tournament. Yeah, I still love shooting at tournaments. But for me going to a tournament, there's no more emphasis on that than me going out in my backyard or me going to my to my own range turning the lights on stepping inside and looking at a fresh target face and saying okay I'm gonna I'm gonna shoot a clean round right now and making it happen for me the process of doing that is just as important as getting a prize doing it and I think by keeping the emphasis on that and keeping the emphasis on what you've really liked about archery when you started it and that was just letting an arrow fly I think that you're going to find that these ruts are going to just kind of one they're going to be minimized and two the actual thought of you being in a rut is going to be a lot less as well because you're just not going to have the emphasis on the result you're going to have a lot of emphasis on what you put in to get in there. And, you know, once again, Aiden, that is something that very few people come to terms with, but in all fairness, it really does make the difference between the goods and the greats. Okay, next question here. Uh, wow, Carlos, you got a crazy long name. But uh, Carlos H. Sevedo, Savedra Carrasco. I think I said that right. Probably not, but I tried. Um, how important is it to keep your actual arrows quiet mid air? This is really important. A lot of people focus on how quiet their bow is at the release, but I really think that the most importance is the how quiet your arrow is in the air, and this is why some of the veins out there that a lot of people are shooting and really like, I do not like because they're noisy. Um, I did a few tests, and actually, uh, someone uh, put me onto this a good friend of mine named Jim Bath out of Kansas. Jim is a very he's probably one of the most knowledgeable whitetail people that I know in, in the world, and he has been around a tremendous amount of mature deer and he had done some tests on this and actually, uh, kind of keyed my interest on trying it. So what I've done is I've actually had a food plot where there's, uh, deer out in the food plot, nothing knows that I'm there and I'll literally just clap my hands together, just like that and then just completely freeze. What you'll find is if everything's calm and you have a very instantaneous noise like that, the first thing everything does is try to locate where that sudden sound came from so that they can quickly determine whether or not it's a threat. So when your bow goes off, whether it's quiet or not, they're gonna hear it. So immediately they're looking or they're attention or their ears is going towards the direction of that sound and then if nothing happens after that then a lot of times they just sit there and stare at that spot trying to determine whether or not it's a threat or whether or not a tree limb broke or what but if you ever do it twice or do that noise and then follow it up with something like a whistle the i mean the field is clearing out. So I've noticed on a lot of video footage that when I've had arrows that weren't particularly quiet, um, and certain broadheads are noisier than others, Uh, I shot like G5 Montex. They're pretty noisy. You start getting them over a higher speed, they get really noisy. That's why uh, for a lot of times, a lot of years, I focused on arrows, uh, broadheads that had a solid blade design just because there wasn't as much uh, wind channeling and so the noise wouldn't be as high because on video i've actually seen on especially some of the longer shots where an arrow takes you know up to a second or less to get there i guess i've seen animals actually turn towards the bow and then their attention goes from like looking towards the ground where the bow went off, to actually looking up directly at that arrow coming in. Um, Antelope do this a lot. Uh, I've had whitetails do it. So uh, that arrow noise is critical. Uh, And I'm, again, a firm believer in, I like a longer, low-profile vein. Um, I shoot that 2.6 Elite knock-on vein. I like it a lot. Um, I don't shoot high fletch counts. Like I like to stick with the 3 fletch. There's a lot of people that are shooting fours and sixes, but honestly, you start to build a noisier arrow. An arrow with noise is going to be less effective on an animal cuz they do react to that arrow, I think more than they react to the bow itself. So try to stick with an arrow and a broadhead design to where, you know, and there's nothing, if you can do it safely, you know, you can always build a couple configurations and have someone sitting behind a wall where they can hear those arrows going by halfway down range. And if you say, wow, that one's really noisy or, you know, I can barely hear that one coming by. It's already gone past once it strikes. uh, Then I think that's going to be the arrow that you want to go with. Um, got a question here from Les Fraud's, Chim. Fraudsham. sorry, Les, I can't pronounce it. Um, he's asking about, uh, holding position of your fixed pins in relation to uphill and downhill situations on the, f- on the fly, like bracketing, um, or gapping. Um, you know, my bow sights are typically, I'll have a 20, 30, 40, 50, sometimes 20, 40, 50, 60. That's in a fixed position, fixed pin position. And then I'll have, you know, like on my lethal weapon max, I've got the ability to, to move that whole set of sights. And then I'll use my bottom pin as kind of my rover for the longer distances. Um, but, you know, when it comes to fixed pins, Um, I've always found for me, I like to, instead of holding pins high, I tend to, I tend to hold the longer pin lower, if that makes sense to you. Um, you know, I really feel like, um, if I draw, if I range an animal and I draw back and I know it's 36 yards, uh, for me, it's always harder to, to hold one pin high. Uh, than it is, you know, an estimate drop. It seems to me that your rise seems a little bit less than the drop. So if I have something that's at like 36 yards, I'll draw back and I'll actually focus on just holding my 40 under the armpit rather than trying to focus on putting my 30 at the top of the back. Um, You know, I just feel like staying closer to that kill zone for me is always – you know extremely valuable Um, you know and this is something that you just really have to go out and do Um, you know go out and actually shoot your you know go out and shoot your your uh, 40 yard pin or your say shoot your 40 yard pin at 30 yards and see how high it shoots Um, you know do the same thing shoot your 30 yard pin at 20 shoot your 50 at 40 you can see that climb Uh, for me, it seems like I can I can quickly hold a little bit lower than the kill zone and allow that arrow to climb into that arrow a little bit easier than me trying to estimate actually raising up so that that arrow falls in there. But that's just me personally. So maybe give that a try. And again, it really comes down to you knowing uh, what your bow does. You know, obviously speed will help a lot in that because you're not going to have near the drop. Uh, the other thing too is, you know, I really like to shoot my pins closer to my bow because it does allow my pin gap to be tighter. A lot of these, a lot of people right now just, you know, I know there's sites out there that allow you guys to shoot longer distances, but a lot of these sites have a long extension bar on them. I'm not a big fan of that. The further your bar is in front of your bow, the bigger your pin gap has to be. Um, You know, if you have a if you print off an archery scale for your bow, uh, you know, if you have a scale, uh, if you if you have it to where your sight is all the way as far out as possible, and you print that scale off, it won't be the same as if you have your sight really close to your bow. So I actually like shooting my sight closer to my bow i I almost like my front sight the same distance in front of my hand as what my rest is behind my hand that really helps counteract my torque keeps my pin gaps tight um which really helps in these types of situations of you know shooting on the fly so keep that in mind for sure um Okay, we've got uh, another question here from Robert Rankin. He says, I'd like to hear your take on what you focus on during the shot, pin only, target only, um, and any use of uh, positive reinforcements as you're executing, repeating a word, phrase in your head. Okay, I talked about this actually during the Lancaster Classic. Um, this is something that a friend of mine called me out on during Vegas uh It might have been one of the last years that I shot it. But my positive reinforcement or my mantra that I continually said to myself during my shot process during that year was, I shoot X's because they make me feel good. I would draw back. I would anchor, come into my peep. I would literally get my pin to the target, and then as my I was letting my breath slowly out, which I talked about in the last podcast. I would almost try to say the words in my mind. I shoot X's because they make me feel good, and my shot would normally break right at the end of that sentence or somewhere about in that that time zone. So, um. You know, I've always been a firm believer on focusing more on the target than on the pin. You know, a lot of a lot of this comes down to when I did shoot a recurve bow and learned to shoot an Olympic-style recurve. You know, you really have to go from being someone that focuses on your pin to then just starting to really focus on the target because you have a lot more movement. And, you know, at the time I was shooting a ring, so I was looking through the ring at you know, and almost putting the whole target bale in the center of my ring, and just pulling through until I shot, and the arrows go in the middle. Whereas when I put a a fiber optic pin on my recurve and really focused on the pin more than the target, I didn't shoot near as good. So, I've really gravitated towards now. My focus does change back and forth slightly. I mean, if my especially if my pin starts to wander off, sometimes I'll, my focus will come back to the pin. But, you know, really the majority of the time, I would say 60 to 70 percent of the time, my focus is on the actual hole that I'm looking at putting my arrow in. And then I would say another 20 percent, I'm looking at the pin, my focus coming back to the pin, then back to the target, and then that last 20 percent. I would say my focus is actually on the bubble, making sure that my bubble is where it needs to be. So I'm kind of dancing a little bit back and forth, but at least 60% of the time or more, my focus is on what I want to hit, not what I'm aiming with. Um, And then, you know, obviously, uh, you know, when it comes to positive reinforcement, I'm a huge believer in this. I'm a huge believer in timing. Um, you know, I, I really like to have my shots execute, you know, 12 to 14 seconds from start to finish, uh, from when I actually get on my trigger to when my shots break in normally seven seconds or less. Um, and that's when things are working properly and I'm really committing to the shot. Um, so next question I've got here is, um, from Link T. Coit, um, let's see well he says i don't know why i printed you off here but when i had asked the question what do you want to hear about he uh he seen that i'd cut off the the time and he says damn i was picking up my new hoyt nitrum 34 well i can promise you right now link getting your new bow is worth is way better feeling than listening to me babble on about archery so uh good luck with that um for sure the next question here is from eric bender um he says he loved hearing me talk at, at the lancaster archery classic how i taught how i started a youth program um love to hear you talk about pointers on becoming better archers by overcoming common problems in form technique and execution um i know you already talked a lot about this but the conversation between um, all right, so, well, my buddy George isn't here right now. He's actually north of me in Minnesota, so this is kind of going to have to come for me. One thing I just, I'm just going to use this, we're getting a little bit low on time, but one thing I want to say is I really want to make sure all you out there utilizing the articles on DudleyArchery.info and the articles on KnockOnTV.com. Um, I haven't really updated these the way that I need to because I post almost all the articles that I write for free for all of you out there. There's an article on shot routine. You need to read this. It's the key to building your foundation. A lot of people have a shot routine that's very in-depth, very strung out, very lengthy, And I'm not a big believer in that. And actually, George and I, when we were talking, he was talking a lot about his routine. I'm not a personal fan of that routine. It's way too complex for my liking. Um, I focus on a lot more basic things, things that are specific to execution breakdowns. Flaws. It's literally when I sat there and watched and critiqued people and when I go and work with a national team or an Olympic team and I'm sitting there looking at the best archers in the world, I'm literally looking at five things that cause all the problems. That's why the shot routine that I wrote, I know, I believe, is as good as you need to have it. It's the specific areas that are that are perfect for maintaining exactly what you have to have to make a perfect shot. If those break down, other things start to crumble and fall with them. So really check out that article on shot routine and focus on that. If you want to minimize your mistakes um, and if you want to start to reduce your breakdowns in form, then all you have to do is sit there and think about those five things each and every shot as you go through, and I guarantee it'll all work itself out. Uh, next question here is from Ryan Branco. He says, um, DIY spine alignment and arrow tuning. Um, let's see, for 3D target and amateur. Um By spine alignment, I'm assuming that you're talking about possibly floating, you know, when you float your shafts and actually mark the highest part of your spine. You know, if you float an arrow in water, um, you know, obviously if if there's any type of variance in the diameter of that shaft all the way around or even a seam down that aluminum shaft where it's been bonded, Um, or a carbon where it's been overlapped and then sanded off depending on how it's made. Um, you know, you can, you can ultimately judge that part of the spine. For me, that's always been a little bit overboard. I can tell you right now, uh, when it comes to actual spine alignment on arrows, what I do is I do a lot of knock tuning, you know, I'll go and I'll mark all my arrows, I'll shoot, Um, at the longer distances and if I start to have arrows that are that are always the same arrow is always leaving the group and a lot of times if you're shooting broadheads you can actually notice this a lot more than with field points if you have one arrow that's always planing to the right or planing to the left um, a lot of times it's showing you that the high spine on the arrow might be a little bit off so what you can do is you just turn your knock slightly called knock tuning um, turn your knock about 45 degrees, shoot that arrow again, and see if that arrow moves back closer to the, to the spot. Um, anytime I've ever had an arrow that wants to kind of group its way out of the others, I'll just start to do that knock indexing. I'll index my knock and knock tune them to where I can bring them into the group. If not, I just cull that arrow and get rid of it. If I do turn it, turn it, turn it, and it finally comes right back in, then it's perfect. Then I want to make sure that I mark that on the back of the shaft. I mark specifically with a little silver pin, okay, the little bump on my on my new knocks need to line up perfectly with right here on this spot. That way, if you shoot a knockoff, you know right where to put one back on so that it works. Um You know, and I guess when it comes to arrow tuning, once again, we're running low on time. I've done some podcasts very specific to this. Um, The last one I talked about this as well. Um, Critical thing is uh, the hill method. I'm certain that I was the creator to that method because I named it myself. Um, I definitely know I'm not the only person to tune that way. For a lot of years, there were some top archers that That did a lot of their fine tuning with that same type of formula, but they definitely didn't want to talk about it because that really did separate people. Uh, You know, 10 years ago, there was a huge separation between compound archers that knew how to get an X10 arrow shaft to group and those who didn't. Um, Some people would get lucky and set up, you know, build a dozen X10s and they would shoot as good as they could, but there's also some people that could never get them to shoot just as good as they're capable of because they didn't know the importance of this hill method. So uh, once again, look for that article called Conquering the Hill. Whether you're a hunter, 3D guy, target guy, uh, doesn't matter. If you shoot a bow and arrow and you want an arrow that is 100% tuned to your bow that's set up correctly, or even incorrectly, you have to do that method. I combine paper tuning as a start. Then I immediately go to my walk back tuning to get my center shot dialed in. Then from there, it's all about tuning with my hill method. And I can guarantee you, when those three are together, there's no possible way to get a bow uh, and an arrow to shoot any better Than what that particular combination is doing. If you do those three things and do them the right way, the last question here of the day is going to be from uh, Matthew Pauls. It looks like Um, he's asking about grip pressure and inconsistency. You know, grip is it's so critical because your hand, your front hand position is the first thing and the last thing to determine the path of the arrow, right? Because it's the first thing that you grab a hold of. So when you go to pull back, that pressure, how you grip that bow when you first grabbed it, that pressure is going to determine how that arrow is affected, where it's going to go. When you shoot and your release clicks, there's still a fraction of a second where that arrow is still on your bow and the only thing still touching your bow is your front hand. So it's the first thing and the last thing to determine the path of that arrow. So you have to have a grip position that's consistent and repeatable. And on this season of Knock On, and it might have actually even been this week's uh, this week's show, I think right now actually, is... Um, A segment about grip position and I actually show you the part of the hand that I always want on one part of the grip versus the other so make sure you tune in Uh, this you know it'll air from from today up until Thursday that that should be airing everywhere Um, but uh, the other thing too is if you're a hunter uh, a great site a great thing on a site is that retina lock. I'm a huge believer in this thing. I really wish we could get this nailed down to where we can incorporate this into a target site because, um, and this is something that I really, really like about Sherlock and also the iCubo sites is that retina lock because it completely shows you any changes that you have in your front hand position. It's a great training aid. Even if you're not shooting, you can just get in the habit. Even if you're at your house, you can just pick your bow up and draw back and look at that retina lock. And if the black dot isn't in the center of the green, you can see how your hand position has put that in the wrong spot and how changing your hand can also change that. So, you know, they've got a great tagline, center the dot for the perfect shot. And that retina lock really helps show you the importance of front hand consistency, and just how easy it is to have that slightly vary. Um, For me, again, with my grip, there's two things. Does it look right? Does it feel right? When I put my hand down at my bow, I ultimately tell my bow to stop, which will put my thumb at about a 45 degree angle. I slide my thumb and the top of my hand against the bottom of the, the grip shelf, You know, I slide it up against the bottom of the riser shelf. Then I do what I call leaning on the door, and I'll lean down against that bow grip to where there's even pressure from the top of my hand all the way down to the bottom of my thumb pad. And I have that even pressure. So when I, you know, does it look right? When I first grab my bow, I make sure my thumb's at a 45 degree angle because that puts my elbow at a position that has good string clearance slide my hand against the top of that that uh, riser shelf so that you know my hand isn't inconsistent high and low on the riser that's critical and then leaning down on that bow so that i have even pressure from the top of my hand all the way down to the bottom of my thumb if you do that you're definitely one step closer to having a much much more repeatable grip position so that's all for today. I appreciate all you guys listening, uh, to another knock on podcast and, uh, make sure that you guys continue to spread the word. And, uh, I know that there's been a lot of you out there who have taken the time to, uh, to voice your appreciation of, of what I'm doing for the industry to some of my sponsors. And I can't tell you how much that means to me. Uh, that's, really important for me to be able to keep doing this because once again these podcasts aren't being paid for by anybody so uh the importance of my sponsors keeping me around and knowing that i'm doing good for archery is is uh is priceless so i appreciate that once again everybody keep your fingers crossed for me vegas weekend Duds' shoulder is going to be uh built to start a new chapter so Looking forward to it. Appreciate it, everybody, and uh, stay safe out there. Put them in the middle. Be sure to visit knockonarchery.com to see our entire line of trendy knock-on lifestyle clothing. Knockonarchery.com.